0: Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, December 7th, two months to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel, Dan here with our Knesset correspondent, Carrie Keller-Lynn, and culture editor, Jessica Steinberg, also the Daily Briefing co-host. Hello to you both. Hi. Hey there. The War Cabinet voted last night to approve a minimal increase in fuel supplies to the Gaza Strip. And we're also hearing about increased reports of sexual abuse of Israeli hostages in Gaza. Kerry will weigh in on both of those, as well as the state of the Israeli political left since October 7th. Jessica is here and will fill us in on what families of released hostages are telling us, and we'll also discuss two of the over 100 hostages whose stories moved us in particular. All this and more when we're back.
1: The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges?
0: It is day 62 to the war, and 86 soldiers have fallen as of this morning in the ground invasion. The ground forces, air force, and navy continue to operate in all parts of the Gaza Strip, pushing further into the encircled cities of Khan Yunis and Jabalia. Late last night, the War Cabinet approved an increase in fuel supplies to the Gaza Strip. So, Kerry, it's not a decision that they made easily, and there was more than
2: a little pressure from the Americans, correct? Absolutely, Amanda. This decision was basically the result of U.S. pressure to double or even triple the amount of fuel that Israel is currently letting into the Gaza Strip. That number, as of yesterday, was about 60,000 liters a day. Today, um, reports say it will be about 120 um, thousand liters, and that might get up to 180,000 liters. Why is this fuel important? Well, from the perspective of, of a Palestinian or from Hamas, uh, fuel is required for several critical things. Uh, the U.S. is, is stressing um, they want fuel to go to humanitarian issues as well as to sewage plants in order to prevent diseases, and that's the line that Israel has reiterated. Um, fuel is also used to run hospitals, to run desalination plants, um, but it is also critically used to ventilate Hamas's hundreds of kilometers long network of subterranean tunnels where the majority of its fighters have been hiding and where Israel is struggling to um, defeat them. And so by choking Hamas of fuel um, or minimizing its access to additional fuel resources, because it was estimated to have about half a million liters of fuel before the war started, um, hoarded, This means that Israel could minimize the amount of time that Hamas is able to um, hide itself away in its subterranean fortress.
0: Right. It should be reminded that Gaza is, of course, a police state and all the fuel will first get to the Hamas operatives. And so the real question is, how is the IDF checking that it makes it to civilians at all?
2: Well, I can tell you the general procedure for how IDF uh, checks aid. The aid comes to the Egyptian-Israeli border at a place called Nitzana and the trucks are checked. From there, it returns through Egypt to the Rafah crossing, and it it's then goes into Gaza. Um, the IDF, uh, specifically the coordinator for, of government activities and territories, tracks that um, all goods until they reach a uh, UN depot, and then it stops tracking the goods. And of course, uh, Israel has also kind of shared um, either off record or otherwise intelligence that once uh, that goods or fuel or whatever reaches an Unruh Depot, it's kind of out of Israel's hands. And that's where it's generally raided by Hamas.
0: Okay, Carrie. we are hearing reports that at least 10 of the Israeli civilians that were released by Hamas, we're talking about both men and women, were sexually assaulted or abused while in captivity. We have, of course, heard terrible accounts of what happened on October 7th You've done a lot of work on this. So it should come as no surprise, but
2: it's still terrible and shocking. What do you know about this? So, Amanda, we don't know very much, actually. We know very little about what happened to um, the 100-odd released hostages when they were held um, for 50 to 60 days in in Hamas captivity. Um, What you said, that there have been reports that um, doctors who've treated some of those released hostages have said they've seen signs and heard testimony about sexual abuses is is kind of the extent of it. But it does align with testimony that we heard from one of the hostages directly. Um, She told the War Cabinet that women were being touched is how she phrased it, um, by, uh, by their captors. And this, of course, aligns with uh, the abuse, the documented abuse that we saw of civilians um, who were attacked by Hamas on October 7th, um, and many of them who did not survive to provide their own testimony.
0: This week, we heard, of course, from President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu crying out to the world to believe women. Do you feel like the tide is turning here in terms of world opinion on
2: this? I think the world is a lot less interested in what's happening in Israel um, or what happened in Israel than what is happening in Gaza. And that's kind of the pattern we saw from the very first few days of the war. Um, Israel still hadn't started its um, air campaign against Gaza, there were still Hamas uh, militants, terrorists on Israeli soil terrorizing communities and killing people in Israel South when we started seeing calls for Israel to not commit a genocide um, in Palestine. That was the phrase being used before Israel dropped its first bomb. Um, And so I I think that the kind of global um, international institutions are kind of taking that same line. Um, and, and that is the, I think, outrage that Prime Minister Netanyahu was expressing um, when he said something very surprising. He said in English, where the hell are you? Um, I don't remember him saying something so pointed uh, in recent memory. Um, of course, with comments directed to those international institutions for uh, taking close to two months to say something might have happened to Israeli women, um, and then making very, very weak statements to that regard once they finally did.
0: Apropos silence, two right ultranationalist organizations and multiple Temple Mount activist groups are set to conduct a march through the Muslim quarter of the old city of Jerusalem tonight. But on the left or the far left, I haven't been hearing much since October 7th. And is there silence strategic? Or is it more of a matter of who cares what they have to say anyway?
2: Well, Israel doesn't really have a far left anymore. Um, it, definitely not politically. There's no far left party that's currently in uh, the Israeli Knesset. And the center left party, um, the Labour Party, has a very, very small representation, almost minimal representation in the Knesset. Um, so the left wing in Israeli politics has is actually kind of eroded for this wider center. That being said, we're not hearing uh, much from leaders. We, I think we did hear from the left-wing leaders on this. Um, but this is just not the issue in Israeli politics today. Everyone is very much focused on the war. Um, and in some ways, this far-right march kind of is slipping in under the radar. I think that if they're provocative today, that's when we might see stronger reactions.
0: Okay, so you are unfortunately leaving us, and your final piece that we are hoping to publish today, tomorrow, is about the state of the left. What else can you tell us about what's happening there?
2: Well, the left wing, as we just mentioned, has been declining very steadily, uh, since the kind of collapse of the Oslo Accords with the Second Intifada about 20 years ago. Um, but there still is a left wing in Israel and there still is a peace movement. Those are distinct entities, but they obviously overlap quite significantly in the Venn diagram. Um, much like the rest of Israeli society, uh, people on the left, people in the peace movement have been grappling with the shock, the the trauma of October 7th, something really unprecedented and that also shook, uh, especially people in the peace movement, their core foundation that, you know, people are inherently good, um, that, you know, bridge building matters. Uh, but the leaders of the peace movement that I spoke to, as well as, uh, the leaders of the political left, um said that October 7th, if anything, just reaffirmed their belief in a two-state solution. And they feel hopeful in some ways that maybe enough has been shaken to show that a diplomatic solution must be the way forward. Now, they don't think that this is going to happen overnight. Um, They phrased it more in a, we don't know how we'll get there, but we think it still must be possible. This can take years. And also remember that uh, peace was made with Egypt only five years after um, Egypt and Syria invaded Israel and surprised the country with what then might have been considered the most devastating war in 1973.
0: Carrie, thank you for that. And good luck to you at the Wall Street Journal. Listeners, check out her byline there. We'll go to a short break.
1: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And we're back. Jessica, thanks for your patience. We heard yesterday that released captive Hannah Katsir is in dire medical condition, and she's not alone. I mean, obviously, the scars on bodies and on minds are very different scars, but they're no less real and you wrote that ever since Noam Avik Dori a 12-year-old was released from Hamas captivity and brought home to Israel she hasn't wanted to let her father Chen out of her sight and she is just one case tell us a little bit more
3: right so in that situation, in in that family, in a sense, that family has been reunited. They are, it's a parents, Chen, his wife Sharon, they have a 16-year-old son, and they have this 12-year-old daughter, Noam. And the mother, Sharon, and the daughter, Noam, were visiting family in Kibbutz Be'eri, part of this very large family group that Certain members were killed right away on October 7th, and then another seven were taken to Gaza. But this particular unit within that greater family, again, are reunited. And the father, Chen, who's actually a very well-known comedy writer in Israeli TV, he spoke very poignantly about that, that he wants that kind of reunification, those kinds of reunions for every family in Israel, which, of course, he knows and we know that that's not going to happen. And while he spoke about his daughter, Noam, who's 12, and the fact that she is okay physically and emotionally, and he said those words, and then he went on to describe what's going on with her, like you said, that she doesn't allow him, that she doesn't allow him out of her sight, not even to take out the garbage. He was in a room speaking to, uh, you know, a a small number of uh, press members, of journalists, and he said, you know, he looks at the door and he said... I made sure that I could go in here. I made sure my wife was available to her. I told her that I was going to come in here. He's like, but, you know, I don't really know how long I can even sit here. Um, He talked about her waking up screaming at night. And then he also said again, but she's generally in good shape. She's processing everything. The stories, little stories are coming out throughout their conversations all the time. And that, in a sense, is what other parents said as well, just to bring up another family that I've followed pretty closely, Ophir Engel, a basketball player from Kibbutz Ramat Rachel up the block from me, turned 18 in captivity, which was not something that was discussed at all in the press, because 18-year-olds generally go into the army, and this was not something the family wanted to really publicize very widely. So. He was taken captive with his girlfriend's father, Yossi Sharabi, and with another 15-year-old boy from the kibbutz, a boy named Amit. The three of them, just by chance, were shoved into a small car and taken to Gaza and held together, the three of them, these two teenagers and a 50-something-year-old man. So the two teenagers were released, but the father of his girlfriend, Yossi Sharabi, and Yossi Sharabi's brother who they were, he was not, they were not held together. He's still in captivity, the 50 year old man. But so on one hand, the father of Ophir Angle, the basketball player says, Ophir is doing okay. He's like, you know, kids are elastic. Teenagers are elastic. They can bounce back. We know that. But at the same time, he said, I don't really know anything because what would I possibly know of a situation like this? In fact, this was four or five days after Ophir was released But they were still in the hospital, Schneider Hospital, which is in Petzach Tikva, about an hour ride from Jerusalem. And he said, Hafir is really not ready to leave the hospital, even though he is physically fine. He was surrounded by friends in the hospital. His room is next door to Amit, the 15-year-old boy who turned 16 in captivity as well. They both had birthdays in captivity, and they kept track of the days that were passing. They even, I think, knew when their birthdays were, sort of. And he said, so the boys are together a lot. They're surrounded by friends. But for instance, Ophir, his son, at that point, when I spoke to him, didn't know, for instance, about the entire effort to bring the hostages home. He didn't know about yellow ribbons. He didn't know about rallies. He didn't know about this huge publicity campaign all over the world. The fact that their faces are plastered on posters everywhere, on banners, he just he said he had no idea, and he wasn't really sure what that would mean as they went on trying to reenter their lives. And, of course, there is still this huge gaping hole of his girlfriend's father, still a hostage.
0: Right. Their faces are so familiar. I've told you in the past that I feel like they're relatives to me. I, I could pick them out. I definitely can recognize them, and I'm just one person in Israel. And, you know, when we launched this project, I said to you, Jessica, I just, I can't work on this. I'll, of course, read your material and publish it and and all of that. But for me, this is just the worst nightmare that a a parent can have. And one of these stories that you wrote recently was about Guy Gilbois Dalal, who is 22 years old, and he was taken hostage on October 7th from the Supernova Rave And as luck would have it, it was his first rave. He'd been planning to go with friends, you know, months ahead of time. And he met his brother, Gal, there. And the two brothers met, hugged, took a selfie, which they sent to their mother. It's all so incredibly relatable to me, of course, since I have kids who are, you know, older teens and all that. And and then they split up. Uh, One decided to go with his friends and the other went to his car. So Gal was hiding for hours in bushes in a bamboo field and behind trees until he was rescued and Guy was taken. And I just, it's such a web of uncertainty and guilt and horror and pain. And we are now two months to the war and one brother is free and the other is not. And it's just one of the stories. You have also... Spoken with mothers in our situation, mothers of older children who are waiting, working to getting their their kids home. Tell us more about that
3: right. so this was a very poignant doesn't doesn't even really fit it, it as much as it should in other situations. Two moms of twenty somethings uh who at the outset of the of the press conference, they said to us to the reporters like, you have to put yourselves, and this was also foreign press, so it wasn't necessarily all only local Israeli reporters. And they said, you have to put yourself in the head of a 20-something. You've got dreams, you've got hopes, you've got plans, you've got the things that you want to do that are important to you that might not seem as relevant at, to an adult, but that are very important to a 20-something. And that, of course, was the situation for every single one of those 20-somethings, 30-somethings, even 40-somethings who were at the supernova rave? So these two moms spoke about their sons Yotam Chaim and Alon Ohel, who both happen to be musicians, which is why these two mothers in the past two months have found you know sort of a lot of solace in one another. And they spoke a little bit about that. Yotam Chaim is 28. He lived by himself in Kibbutz Kfar Aza. Uh, he's a drummer. He's a heavy metal drummer. And he was taken hostage from Kibbutz Kfar Aza. That's sort of his story. And Alon Ohel is a pianist, 22, um, went to the rave, actually ended up in the same shelter as Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, who we've written about a lot. This was this shelter that had 29 people crammed in there. And one very brave soldier had Mm. thrown the grenades back out. Both of them were taken hostage. So Yotam, back to him, the 28-year-old from Kibbutz Kfar Aza, he's a drummer, lives alone. He's someone who struggles with some medical and mental health issues. His mother didn't go into it. Doesn't really matter. Um, he got through that morning alone, very scared in his safe room, played drums, which were where in his safe room in order to keep himself distracted. And then the day went on and on. And his parents who live in a nearby Moshav couldn't come get him because the road was filled with terrorists. And they all knew that. And then at some point, he said to his parents, you know, they're burning the house. They're outside my window. I can't go out. I can't go anywhere. I am I am locked into this room, in a sense. And he really was, and that was it. That was the last time that they heard from him. And she wept. She wept on and off throughout this press conference, because her 28-year-old, who she talks to several times throughout every day, even though he's wants to, you know, he has his plans, he has his dreams, he wants to become a great heavy metal drummer, he wants to perform around the world, but right now, obviously, that's not happening. And this was what really got to me was earlier in the morning when no one really knew the extent to which there was this attack, this vicious attack that was happening in this kibbutz and in so many others. He said to his parents, and they played the recording, I am, he said, I'm just so pissed. I'm so angry that the festival that I was supposed to play at tonight in Tel Aviv was canceled. Meaning that this event was canceled earlier in the day because there were all these rockets going off and knew, no one knew what was could be happening in the evening. And that's what he was most upset about earlier in the day because this is something a gig he'd been planning on for a long time. If I'll just to turn to Alon, Ohel, the pianist so his parents, who actually live up north, and this was also one of his first raves. He had not been to a lot of them. He's been traveling the world. He plays the piano wherever he sees it, walks into a bar in the Philippines, plays the piano, sees a piano on the street, plays it, walks into someone's house, plays the piano. So they, he does a lot of jazz. So they've been doing a lot of different musical events in order to really feel his energy and keep him close to them in their hearts and do what he loves to do. So they brought a very... They brought a very famous Israeli jazz musician. They brought Avishai Cohen to their house in the north, and they play one of his songs. It's also with Alon's younger brother, who's also a musician, and it's a beautiful, haunting piece that we've linked to in several pieces, so we people can listen to it. And they also put a piano in Hostages Square in Tel Aviv, which is in front of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art where there's all these rallies that happen and there are all these impromptu art exhibits that have been placed there. And this piano has a uh, a sculpture of a big yellow light um, sort of pouring over this piano, making the piano yellow. And it's basically supposed to be an ohel, like a tent of light, sort of, again, referring to alone, referring to his spirit, referring to to his energy. And all of these different musicians have been sitting down at the piano and playing and kids and teens and adults. And it helps the family. It helps them feel like, you know, he could come back and he could play the piano there in Hostages Square. And that's what they hope is going to happen.
0: We are all holding our breaths and it's just suffocating. Two months on, uh, waiting for them. Jessica, thank you for sharing their stories with us. Sure. Listeners, thank you for joining us for today's daily briefing. Check out another installment with Jessica tomorrow. This installment was produced by The Podwaves. If you have a question about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom.